0: Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I enjoyed the portion of the song service that I actually attended. I'm sorry I brought up a song that that had previously been sung, but we sang it well and it was enthusiastic, so I was blessed by it. I am going to be back in the book of 1 Timothy today trying to work through chapter 5, But I want to start in Psalm 73 today. Uh, As I'm trying to think of a title for this sermon and a way for us to think about the thoughts I'm going to set before you, uh, the thought I had in mind was kind of worldly chaos and house order. So there's chaotic things going on in the world, and there's supposed to be order in the Lord's house. The way we go about things is supposed to be orderly and we're supposed to uphold the precepts and doctrines of the Lord Jesus Christ in the church. It should be a place of sanity amidst a world that seems to have gone crazy. Uh, but sometimes we look at the world around us and we, uh, we may on, on one hand say it's kind of a crazy world out there and there's so much wickedness going on. But we also may look at it at times and kind of be envious or think, you know, they're the ones that are kind of getting ahead and it seems like the wicked prosper and we're the ones who don't do as well. And uh, that attitude is captured in Psalm 73. And I think it's one that all of God's people can relate to. I think at one time or another... You've had this sort of thought. I know that I have, and having had many conversations with God's people over the years, I think it's a common sentiment. As you read through the Psalms, you will find many common sentiments that are captured in um, the writings here, and this is a Psalm of Asaph, so whatever else might be said, Asaph certainly thought this way, and I think a lot of God's people do. Let's read a little bit in this. Truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Have you ever had that feeling in your heart? You think, man, these people are just as wicked as they can be, and they are just getting ahead, getting wealthy occupying the seats of power, in control of everything, and by all external appearances it seems like everything's going great for them. And I'm a, I'm envious of that. I see that and it just kind of upsets me. I think that's a common sentiment. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. It just seems like everything goes well for them. And I'm down here struggling with all kinds of issues. Therefore, pride compasseth them about as a chain, and violence covereth them as a garment. They're dressed in fine attire in the basis of their pride. It's all based in their pride. It seems like they're wearing fancy clothes and wearing gold chains around their necks. And it's just, they're just doing well. And I'm over here struggling. And I'm kind of envious of that, is what Asaph is saying. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, How doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? They're kind of scoffing at God, right? They've got it all figured out. They've got the cheat codes for life down here, and they're doing well, and they seem to be getting ahead, and they're wearing the fine clothes, and everything seems to be going perfect for them. And they kind of scoff at the notion of God. Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. In other words, Am I serving God for nothing here? They're the ones getting ahead. I'm over here trying to serve the Lord in his house, and I don't seem to be getting ahead. Doesn't seem to be accruing to me. I don't have fancy clothes and a gold chain around my neck, and I'm not able to show all this prosperity. Am I really doing this all for nothing? That's kind of how I feel sometimes. That's how Asaph felt. Um, Maybe I've done it all in vain. Maybe it's all for nothing. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of my children, of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Thinking about this matter, it's just almost more than I can handle is kind of the way I take it from ASAP. That's the attitude we can have towards the world. And we will think about that a little bit as we look through 1 Timothy chapter 5. Now, in contrast, that's Asaph looking at the world. A little preview of that is he's got a wrong-headed attitude about it, right? I think we can all see that though we may share that sentiment, though we may think like Asaph does from time to time, that's not the right way to think about it. That's the produce of your carnal mind thinking about how to get ahead in the world. Not the produce of the spiritual mind, but within God's house, in contrast to what's going on in the world, we see that there's a that the, God's house is to be a house of order. We're to do things in an orderly fashion, right? It's not cheat people out of things because whatever advantage you can have to get ahead, you take that, and that's how you make more money, and that's how you exalt yourself above others in your pride. It's not that. It's understanding that there's an order that God has laid out, and we are to follow that. And we're supposed to do things in certain ways. You see, being a disciple means being under the discipline of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has precepts and teachings that we are to follow, and that's what maintains order in the Lord's house. So it's very important that we understand that and that we put it into practice. Now, in chapter 5... Paul speaking to the young minister Timothy is giving him some guidance, and he's going to talk in particular about how you are to deal with other elders, how you deal with women, and then he gets into this topic of what's called widows indeed. He's talking about widows in the church and widows indeed, and they're two different things, and he talks specifically about what the qualifications are for being a widow indeed and how those people are to be taken care of. He talks a little bit about elder compensation, uh, which has been a matter of no small controversy among the primitive Baptists over the years, but we'll see a little bit of guidance here. Uh, He talks about how do you handle accusations against an elder. Uh, He goes on to talk a little bit about being impartial, impartiality, very important. Ordination and purity. And then he kind of reminds them that you don't really see everything. You don't see all. And we'll talk a little bit about that. So let's, let's try to step through this together starting with his uh, comment about elders. He says, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father and the younger men as brethren. I think primarily in this text, this is not speaking strictly of the office of elder, but because it's done in contrast with the younger, it's really talking about people who are older and younger than you. Now, in many instances, the elder is also, an ordained elder is going to fall into the category of someone who's older than you. That's not true in all cases. But that's how I take this passage. Because of the, uh, the contrast that is drawn out to the younger men, elder and younger men. It seems like he's talking about those who fall on either side of you on the timeline of age, right? So if if you're in a situation where you see someone older than you is in error, uh, you're not supposed to come up and give a finger-wagging rebuke as if you have now presumed to be the judge of this person and you're going to kind of let them have it like that uh, and treat him as a father. In other words, Consider this in the situation, now you you have to kind of, I think you have to have had a good father-son relationship for this uh, advice to have made sense. Some people have very bad relationships with their fathers and they're hostile and all sorts of bad things are going on. But if you're in the the context of a good family father-son relationship, you realize that if you see your father doing something that is wrong... You've got to approach that in a respectful fashion. You've got to approach that from the standpoint of going, okay, first of all, this guy's gone a long way down the road of life, a, lot, a, a much further distance than I've traveled, and um, I need to be mindful of that and respectful of that. So you're not gonna come in with finger-wagging presumption about I'm some 20-something, and I'm gonna tell you, this 60-year-old guy, how the cow ate the cabbage on this matter. You need to recognize you haven't gone as far down this road. You haven't dealt with as many challenges as this person has. And there's just a respect that must be brought into play. It's not a rebuking. It's more like a familial conversation between a father and his son. It might be something like, i noticed this. Why, why is this going on? Right. I noticed that you did this. Is that? Can you help me understand why you're doing it that way? Uh, a proper and mature elder should, just from the, in, the entreaty alone, should recognize, you know what, I've got a responsibility of how I'm supposed to conduct myself before people. And I see in how this is being approached that it's at least been uh, in someone else's her view or in someone else's judgment that I haven't conducted myself properly. So I need to be very respectful about how this whole thing gets handled. And the elder should also recognize this is something difficult for a young person to do, right? Um, and be mindful of that as well. So entreat the elder as a father and the younger men as brethren, So if you're talking about someone who is younger than you in the church, you need to regard them. I say this all the time. The church is a family, right? So you need to regard this like your brothers, and you need to talk to them as though they're brethren. Um, There's a a way that you can handle that that is familial in nature and uh, that can help with the matter. So that's some guidance with respect to how uh, we deal with those situations. He moves on to talking about women, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. So I have often mentioned this to people in the church, and I believe it as strongly as anything. I have a wonderful mother, but I have many mothers as a result of being a member of this church. I have many sisters as a result of being in this church. That's how we are to regard it. In my natural family, it's just me and my brother. I didn't know anything about sisters. I didn't know anything, I didn't know anything about women and still don't know much. But there is, I've come to learn something about sisters, not only from my natural family and the fact that I have a son and daughters, but also from my relationships with many women in the church. I understand more about mothering and sistering and the mother-sister-brother-son relationship as a result of being a member of the Lord's New Testament church than I would have ever learned just from my own natural mother. There's many other dimensions to it, that you can enter into. And this is why I think it is so important that you embrace the idea that the Lord's New Testament church is a family. Very, very important. It's a valuable asset in your life. So we're supposed to regard uh, the elder women as mothers and the younger as sisters with all purity, right? Now, when you think of the brother, sister, mother, son relationship it it is it's a pure relationship right it's not one where there's some element i'll just put it crassly there's not an element of human sexuality involved in it okay it's not a sensual relationship of that sort and that is not how you are to relate to the older and younger women in the church you're to regard them as if they are members of your own family right so um There are many issues that crop up in churches, by the way, because a pastor or someone in the church who has some measure of authority or prominence starts to have impure relationships with women in the church, right? It's a little too flirtatious. It's a little too uh, lacking in consideration of the appropriate means whereby you're supposed to manage that relationship. This is supposed to be like your sister or your mother. And I think reasonable people don't need that explained uh, very much. But I will just say this to, to the men in particular. This is something you need to be mindful of in how you interact with the women of the church. It is not to be a flirtatious matter. It is supposed to be like, This woman's older than me, she's my mother. This woman's younger than me, she's my sister. And that's how it's supposed to take place. Um, So that is such a prominent problem in churches that um, it's important that we mention it, right? I don't have any situation in mind when I do that. I just know that this is the Word of God And I know that it causes problems. And we don't want it to cause problems here. So we do this with all purity. Honor widows that are widows indeed. In the next few verses, he's going to talk about what it means to be a widow indeed. Here's the qualification. But if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God (coughs) and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. You see you can be someone you can be a member of the Lord's church you can be someone who is born again who has spiritual life but can get caught up in the matters of life and the matters of the pleasures of life to such a degree that Paul would speak of you as being dead while she liveth, right? You can live in such a way that so orients your life around vanity and nonsense that you're never going to find the spiritual sustenance that you need as a child of God. And in that sense, You're just starving to death. You're dead. You're not. You're not dead in the sense that you're not born again. You're dead in the sense of how you are living is not feeding your spiritual nature. This is a warning uh, to, to women in particular that there are many vanities in this world that can kind of take on more prominence in your mind than is necessary, and you can get very wrapped up in them and wrapped up into following them. And they don't minister life into you. They don't minister the sort of spiritual life and vitality that's required to have a healthy spiritual family in the church. They just make you dead to these things. Vanity can take up so much space in your life that you don't have room for something spiritual. I think that's one of the primary weapons that the Lord or that... uh, um, the Lord warns us against. The devil will bring to bear in your life. I just, if I can just take up all of your time, how are you going to have time to serve the Lord? If I worked you so hard that you didn't have time to sit down and eat, would you starve to death eventually? Would you start to feel pretty bad at some point? You're like, man, you're working me. I hadn't had anything to eat. I mean, everybody recognizes that. I don't know too many people that miss meals. And if they do, they're usually complaining about it. I don't have anything to eat today at lunch. I'm getting hungry. I mean, we recognize that in the normal temporal affairs of our lives. And yet the Bible draws parallels between life and death and and spiritual food and natural food. And some people will go about starving themselves to death with vanities. And yet... They don't see, well, maybe I'm spiritually dead inside. I have no spiritual sense about me and I'm starving spiritually. Maybe I have this deadness because I haven't fed myself from the Word of God. I haven't gotten the normal diet of what the Lord would have me to eat, uh, spiritually speaking. And as a result, I've ministered death into my own life. Right? You've got to find some space for things. I've, I've often said we... Progress in things that we commit time to. And if all our time is committed to vanity and uh, none of it is committed to seeking the things of the Lord, you're going to find that you're ministering death into your own existence from a spiritual perspective. You're just not feeding the spiritual man. So it's important that we do that. Not be too wrapped up in pleasures. uh, And that's the thing that uh, often gets people in trouble. Verse 7, and these things give in charge that they may be blameless. In other words, I'm just, a minister supposed to tell you these things, and they're not always pleasant things to share. But the matter is so that you will be blameless in it. Like what the things I've just said in the last 10 minutes, you might say I don't really like hearing that. It's not very pleasant. Some of that is is uh, difficult to hear. Maybe you maybe you're Maybe you like your pleasures a little too much, right? I like those things, and I don't like the idea that somebody's trying to wrestle them out of my hands. I'd prefer that my religion stays out of my life. Well, that may be an unpleasant thing to realize, but I've given you this charge, even as Paul told Timothy to do, such that uh, you need to be blameless in the matter. You need to consider what's being said Examine your own life and, and really honestly ask am I, am I too oriented around vain pleasures and not oriented enough around service in the Lord's house it's an honest question and uh, it's important that you consider it but if any provide not for his own and especially for those of his own house he hath denied the faith And is worse than an infidel. Incredibly important that we provide for our own. If we had a situation where, for example, men were being extremely derelict in their duties as fathers and husbands, in the provision they are supposed to have for their own family, the church would likely descend into chaos. Well, first of all, you'd have a church that's full of men Who are not living up to their spiritual responsibility in the home, it is highly unlikely that they're gonna go above and beyond the call of duty or even step up to the minimum requirements of what they need to be doing for service in the kingdom of God. So it's incredibly important, and never think that your labor is in vain. The Lord will provide. I know I've had times in my life where I was worried about providing for my family, and I think all men have that in some measure. Uh, We have to trust the Lord, realizing the Lord will provide. He will never leave us nor forsake us. And we know that he will provide and we need to trust him even if we don't see the mechanism whereby he's going to provide. We just need to know that he will. I suspect that as often as not, the problem we have is not so much believing that the Lord will provide as it is Believing that the Lord will provide in keeping with what I believe my level of provision should be. See, that's the problem we have. This is why I keep coming back to covetousness. Um, We have been blessed materially in this world. And as a result, everybody tends to have in their mind there's some level of of personal existence that I am deserving of that I should never have to fall below. And everybody's level's a little different. Everybody thinks of it a little differently. But this is, uh, this is such a universal thought among American people that I would find it impossible to believe that it doesn't affect each and every one of us. We do. We do think this way. And we're affected by it. But the Lord's going to take care of us, and as a result, men are to stay about the business of taking care and providing for their own. Those in our own house. Failure to do so is a denial of the faith and makes you worse than an infidel. That's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. <clears throat> he goes on to talk a little bit more about this matter of widows, indeed. Let not a widow be taken into the number under three score years old, having been the wife of one man. So 60-year-old women and above. Having been the wife of one man, it has to have been someone who's married. Well reported of good works. If she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. These are people who have been evident, faithful servants in the Lord's house, right? right? That's right. Very, very important that we recognize that. Now, you know, we're talking about a time when we didn't have a lot of the mechanisms we have today. People didn't have the sort of savings accounts. They didn't have the sort of social security and other things that tend to step in and take care of situations where widows are widows indeed. Uh, by the way, I, I'm going to submit this controversial idea. Um, I think the church has been hurt by the notion of Social Security because there's a part of us that has thought, oh, that's on the government now, right, right? The government is going to take care of that and the subtle thing that happens is we say well now that we have social security we can kind of scratch through some of this stuff here because we don't really need that anymore they didn't have it in their time but now we have social security and i think what that's done is it has blunted our sense of dedication and duty to widows indeed in our time and uh... It shouldn't be that way well reported of good works if she have brought up children if she have lodged strangers if she have washed the saint's feet you think they were washing the saint's feet back then why would he bring that up right Right. um if she have relieved the afflicted if she have diligently followed every good work so you're talking about 60 year old women who are widowed, who meet these qualifications, who have been faithful, diligent mothers and participants in the kingdom of God over the course of their life such that anyone that mentions them is going to say, that is a woman who has maintained good works. I've seen her wash the saints' feet. I've seen her involved in raising her own children and those sorts of things. But the younger widows refuse. In other words, it's not just any, uh, anyone out there Who happens to fall into the category of a widow? He had very specific uh, requirements for the widows, indeed. Younger widows refuse, for when they have begun to wax wanton against Christ, they will marry, having damnation because they have cast off their first faith. And withal, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers and also busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. Now, that's not a very pleasant characterization of women. You bring that up in a public assembly, and it's liable to to ruffle some feathers. Now, you add on top of that, not only am I just talking about women, I'm talking about widows. Well, why are you piling on the widows? Here's a young widow. Well, am I made your enemy because I tell you the truth? This is what the Apostle Paul said. And he's pointing out, I believe that that the intent here is that, look, if you take those women under care and you start trying to pay their bills and take care of everything for them, it's not going to go well. They're going to tend to become people who run around and stir up a lot of trouble. They're going to be stirring up drama in the church, and they need to be... um, You don't want to be an instrumental cause Of that coming to pass So that's why they're not brought Into the same level of care And concern by the church I will therefore So what should you do with them Right He's pointing out This is kind of how it goes Not a pleasant observation Probably upsets a lot of people Just to have that said But that's Paul's Paul's word on the matter and he says this, I will, therefore, that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. There is a lot in that verse, and we should unpack at least some of it. Marriage is a good thing. People going out and getting married, I mean, it's, it's getting pushed back. More and more in our society. I've heard now that the average age of people getting married is like 30 years old or something. That was unheard of. You know, 50 years ago, we talked about the Donaldson Peace Meeting. I bet most people around that time, those people were getting married so young, it'd make you a little uncomfortable. But all of them were getting married much younger in life. You know, you're talking about, oh, we we graduated high school and we got married. That sort of thing was very common. And now we're stretching this out for lots of purposes well i i want to i want to get my education well i want to uh live my life a little there's a whole lot of stuff that fits into that box it's not worth a hoot that's going to undermine the potential for you to have a successful marriage later on but that's that's really what's going on with a lot of folks they're saying, I want to live it up till I'm 30, and then I want to kind of turn my life around. You have this phenomenon going on in churches all the time. People going out and living profligate lives of fornication until they hit their about 30. It's astonishing how many women who are doing this suddenly find Jesus when they're 30. Just about the time their phone stops ringing, they start thinking, man, I may have squandered my entire youth, and now i got to lock some man down, so I'm going to go find Jesus in a church. By the way, those situations often breed very unstable marriages in the future. Because when people have run around and been that open, had that many sexual experiences across the community, the likelihood that they're ever going to find satisfaction with one man is not very high. And the statistics are staggering. So Paul talks about <laughs> these women getting married. I will, therefore, that the younger women marry. He's not like, I will, therefore, that they, they spend a good time in school and then you know, get out and get established, and then maybe they should start thinking about getting married. That's really not the admonition that Paul says. And by the way, you can do all of these things You can pursue an education, might be easier to pursue an education if you had a man in your life. For a man, it might be easier if you had a wife at home. You might be less likely to go out and hit all the frat parties and all this stuff if you had a wife to come home to. So there's a lot of practical knowledge that's being imparted here, that women marry and bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary, to speak reproachfully. This idea of burying children and guiding the house is just, there's a lot of contempt poured upon that in our society. Look, I've worked in corporate America for 30 years. And I'm telling you, I've seen all sorts of women with all sorts of big time, high octane jobs making a lot of money and stuff like that, get a lot of honor in the corporate world, uh, accolades and whatnot. The truth is none of that is half as important as a mother who's raising her children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There is no dishonor in that at all. It is the Lord's work. We've got that completely twisted around in our minds today. And the Lord's house ought to be a place where we correct that thinking. It's really not the way we should think about it. You think about how this plays out over time. Just say you're a young woman, and you have a family. You get married, and you have some kids, and you're raising those kids up. And in 20 years, they're running off, and they're starting to have some kids. And you're getting older. There's more kids and more kids. And by the time you are in your 70s, you're looking around, and you're looking at this great bounty this harvest, this great bounty of humanity, that all came out of your womb. That is incredible. It's really incredible. And if you squander every bit of that, where do you end up on another path? On one side, you've got a deathbed of a family, you're surrounded by a family that came out of your own womb. And on the other side, you've got a 401k that you're going to have to figure out who you're going to give it to. And your boss is not going to hold your hand on your deathbed. I just want to emphasize the importance of of being a mother and having a family. It is incredibly important. I'm not saying that just because we have a baby shower, by the way, today. This is in the text that I was preaching on. Without any thought for there being a baby shower, family and children and taking care of those kids is incredibly important it's incredibly important don't ever let the world make you feel ashamed if you're someone who's at home trying to take care of your kids it is a thankless job in many respects you're not going to have you're going to get accolades and big awards and stuff like that but it's incredibly important I submit that a lot of the problems we have in our society today are directly related to the fact that people have downgraded the importance of that and have upgraded the importance of corporate employment. So I set that before you. Very important. Family is important. Raising kids is important. Verse 15. For some are already turned aside after Satan. If any man or woman that believeth hath widows, let them relieve them, And let not the church be charged, that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. In other words, widows indeed who need this support, that's where the church ought to focus itself. And families ought to pick up the slack in a whole host of other areas, right? Um, You should try to make it such that your family is able to take care of people who have needs. But the church can come in and focus on the widows indeed. These are the ones who are most especially in need of support. Let the elders that rule be well counted, worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Well, I feel like uh, the Primitive Baptists have gone round and round about this issue of how ministers get paid. And I think a lot of it is vanity. Uh, One thing I'll point out here is that uh, they who labor in the word and doctrine and then in verse 18 it says, For the Scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the labor is worth worthy of his reward. To me that just sounds like the minister needs to be paid, and he needs to be paid in a manner that is in keeping with the value of what he's bringing to the congregation. And I've seen us tie ourselves in knots over whether or not, well, is that a salary? Or is it, an indeterminate amount of money that's given to him randomly on a week-by-week basis. To me, this is like down in the weeds of the logistics of how, you, how people get paid. When you think about day laborers, day laborers in, um, in the Bible, they're talking about, well, I will give you a penny to, if you work today, right? They had an established rate. They were worthy of their wages when the day was done. I think we focus on irrelevancy sometimes, The point is that the minister is supposed to be paid. He's supposed to be given that honor. He should be paid something worthy of the work that he's doing. And we should back away from getting ourselves bent out of shape on whether or not there's some set amount that he's getting paid on every pay period or whatever. He should be compensated. And that's the main issue. If you want to find ways to split up as Primitive Baptists, I can give you a list of other things we can work on because that one just frustrates me to no end. It seems kind of ridiculous. The other thing that I want to point out from this is it says, let the elders that rule be well counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. The word elders there is plural. A plurality of elders is the biblical model. It is not one that is particularly common among the Primitive Baptist people in our day and age. Now, I'm not throwing stones at those who don't have a plurality of elders. There's a variety of reasons why a church might find itself in that situation. So I'm not throwing stones. But I will say this, the model in the Bible is a plurality of elders. So congregations who find themselves without a plurality of elders ought to be praying that the Lord would raise up elders, and there's elders who should be involved in churches who are not the pastor. That is the proper biblical model, and it's laid out right here. By the way, it's, it says, Specially, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. That means there's going be, there should be elders in the church who are not primarily laboring in the word and doctrine in the way that the pastor of the church is, Right? They are there for guidance and for other sorts of spiritual assistance and wisdom and those sorts of things. They're there for when there's a wreck on I-30 and one of the ministers couldn't make it in, you've got some ability to uh, have Brother Sonny uh, preach if I couldn't make it. So there's a lot of benefits to this idea. And my question is, do we believe the Lord is not going to raise these men up? He told us to pray that you would raise up laborers for the harvest and that the fields are wide unto harvest. And I can only conclude that if Jesus Christ said to pray for this, that He's going to answer that prayer. And if we are somehow deficient in elders, maybe we hadn't prayed enough about this. So I call that to your attention. That's why I keep calling us back to the idea of praying that the Lord would raise up men. I would love to see among the old Baptists a situation where Five years from now, we had many more churches that had a plurality of elders in them. That would be a wonderful thing. By the way, this church has been blessed with that uh, on many occasions. I don't know that we've always had it, but we've had it on many occasions just through my tenure here. So, um, And even before I was an elder, we've had situations like that. So um, bear that in mind. Elders are worth their pay, and you don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the corn. They they deserve to be compensated in these things. Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. You don't just casually take up the matter of I heard this elder was was doing this, right? You should take. You should should be something that before you receive that, you say, wait a minute, we've got to have some substantiation for this. And I think the reason for this, there's probably many reasons for it, one that comes to my mind is that uh, there's people who just want to throw stones at the church and want to create trouble. And if they can just launch one accusation into the mix and stir up a whole bunch of trouble, uh, then it didn't take much to stir up the trouble they wanted to create, right? So we need to be cautious about that. And and uh, we need to take uh, any accusations need to be done substantiated by two or three witnesses to them that sin uh, them that sin rebuke before all that others may fear. That's an unpleasant reality. But imagine this: if you had committed some public offense I'm sure the idea of saying i, I got to be brought up before the church and say something about this, either I, you know, I apologize, I did this, it was wrong, that's a pretty unpleasant scenario to kind of think of yourself having to, having to step through. But it says here that others also may fear. Well, that's a pretty dreadful thing, and I'm sure that people watching it well, they might say, I don't understand why this church would do something like that, that just seems so uncharitable, and why would you make someone step through that level of unpleasantness? Well, there's a purpose in it, and it's that others also may fear. I read that as, if you're sitting out there watching it, feeling all the discomfort that you feel as a result of seeing what has happened, it might make you say, I don't ever want to get myself in that situation. That's a fearful thing maybe I need to straighten up some things going on in my life for fear that I might end up in that same situation so it has a purpose and that purpose is not just you need to make sure that person is properly shamed in front of the congregation it is that other people would recognize this is a dreadful thing and I don't want to get caught up in it I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another doing nothing by partiality. In other words you don't say well we're going to really we're going to really go hard at this one brother because we're we're not too fond of him anyway. But this brother over here we're real fond of him. He's got a good sense of humor and you know he always brings fried okra and we're just tickled with him. So we're going to go easy on him and go hard at this other one over here. Can't do it that way. Let's finish up this chapter. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be a partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. This is talking about there's an efficacy in some aspects of medicine, and it's okay to do that. It's a little wine. This is what some people refer to as medicinal wine. Probably covers other types of medicines, although I would say there's a cautionary word about letting this stretch too far into the realm of medicine. Uh, A little wine is not a particularly strong medicine. Some of the medicines that are available today that they will serve to you like Tic Tacs are very strong, absolutely mind altering. And you should be careful about that. So medicine is is uh, acceptable and usable and has some purpose here. Um, verse 24, Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Likewise, also, the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. One of the things I take out of that is just, we don't see everything. There's some things we don't know what's going on. Other things come out. Um, so you need to you need to you need to have caution about how you approach these matters, uh, particularly when you find someone that's dealing in error. Now that chapter is talking about how you're supposed to maintain order in the house of God as it relates to elders and younger men, older and younger women, widows indeed. Uh, how you are to compensate your elders, how you're to be impartial in how you handle things, not favoring one over another. talks about some aspects of ordination. It, it um, you know, admonishes you to maintain purity and all those sorts of things. That's part of the order. That's the order that you're supposed to maintain in the house of God. There's a lot of other testimony regarding order in the house of God, but on those topics, this is like that. This is how you do it in those particular areas. But now let's go back to Psalm 73 as we close. We started this sermon with the idea of you're kind of looking out at the world and you're envious of how they seem like they're getting ahead. You know, why are all the wicked prospering? And I'm over here struggling with everything. I'm almost envious of those people. And I said that's a wrong-headed attitude. But where do you get that corrected? We all think that way from time to time, or at least I do. Where do you find correction in this way of thinking about things? Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. There's a blessing that you receive by entering the sanctuary of God and listening to the Word of God declared that will correct your thinking, your wrong-headed thinking about the world. The truth is the world is not prospering. You may be inclined to think that from time to time, but that is not the way it's working out. What they're pursuing is vanity. You may be frustrated by the fact that it seems like everybody is cheering and rallying around that and talking about how great they are. But the Word of God says it's all vanity and foolishness, and that ultimately there's a world to come That has been purchased for us by the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are a joint heir in His kingdom. Why on earth should those of us who have inherited all things through Christ have even a moment's jealousy with respect to what seems to be going on in the world? You find that correction, and you find that north star that points you towards the truth by showing up in the Lord's house and hearing his word preached. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons, preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.